I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department here at the Central Library of Ina Pratt Free Library. And welcome to a special night here at the Central Library. This week in Baltimore and at the Pratt Library, we're celebrating and, and spotlighting Healthy City Days. We want to join the mayor, the Baltimore City Health Department, and all the different agencies and institutions across this great city to promote healthy living. This week, the Pratt Library will have free programs that will offer information on eating better, exercise, and free screenings. Tonight is one of those wonderful programs. The Pratt Library has always supported programs that focus on a healthy lifestyle. From our wonderful Cathedral Street windows that promote awareness to important issues like heart disease, obesity among children, testicular cancer, and breast cancer. We've also had flu clinics here, free flu shots administered by the health department are given out in the main hall. The first flu clinic of this season is this Friday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So if you have nothing to do, just stop by and get your flu shot. We've partnered with the Baltimore City Health Department on many programs. But one program we are both very proud of is the Virtual Supermarkets. It's a nationally recognized program that offers groceries and healthy choices to Baltimoreans living in parts of the city that are called food deserts. Through this program, our patrons can order their groceries, including produce, meats, and basic staples at the library. It's become so successful, so successful that we have expanded it this year to a third Pratt branch. However, tonight we are honored to host this great panel discussion with the John Hopkins Center to Reduce Cancer Disparities. We're hoping this will begin a dialogue in the city on how to improve cultural competence in healthcare and eliminate health disparities. Now let's get this started. To introduce our speaker, please welcome to the Pratt Library, Charlene N.D. and Dr. John Ford. Good evening. We want to thank Dr. Hayden, and we'd like to especially thank you, her and her staff for opening the doors of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Her role as CEO and many services she provides along with her staff is vital to the overall well-being of our community, and we hope to experience their hospitality again in the future. In 2010, Dr. Jean Ford and colleagues established the Johns Hopkins Center to Reduce Cancer Disparities to address disproportionate rates of cancer among African Americans living in Baltimore and Prince George's County, Maryland. The center was made possible with funding from the National Cancer Institute, and it joined the ranks of several other Johns Hopkins Disparity Centers and Office of Diversity and Cultural Competence. During the three decades since the Tuskegee syphilis study was exposed to the American public, government regulators, regulations, and research institutions have put in place important safeguards to protect the public from unethical research practices. Dr. Ford. 
Good evening. I'm going to go off my teleprompter for a second just to acknowledge a couple of people here who are really essential to our being here tonight. Uh, there's a couple of my colleagues here, uh, Janice Bowie and Lee Bone, who were, you know, they lost a lot of sleep, and Michelle Towson <laughs> lost sleep uh, formulating the ideas that led to the, uh, the, the, the existence of the center. Uh, but most important, uh, what we what we keep learning every time is that leadership is what transforms a vision into a reality. And uh, Charlene had the uh, vision of uh, inviting Dr. White uh, after reading his book in early February. She was very excited and and uh, brought us all on fire. And uh, along the way, as we built the coalition to put together this program, uh, we were gratified uh, to get open arms from our associate dean of uh, diversity and cultural competence, Dr. Brian Gibbs, who is here, and his leadership has been essential to the success of Dr. Uh, White's visit. And uh, uh, also Donna Perry, who I'm not sure whether or not she's here, uh, she has uh, been very, very important in uh, getting this uh, uh, together in terms of organizing the program. I want to single out one of my colleagues uh, who didn't sleep at all the night before we put in the grant to create the center. She's right here. <laughs> Darcy Phelan, Dr. Phelan, and Helen Kelly, with whom I've worked for quite some time. And um, so anyway, it's really teamwork uh, that creates that, but our team is limited. Uh, you heard, uh, the talk about the Tuskegee syphilis study and uh, what has been clear to us as we're implementing the work of the center here in Baltimore City and also in Prince George's County is that the issue of medical distrust, it comes up very frequently in conversations about how it is that we do work to engage the community members in uh, medical care and in research. And uh, uh, what better person could we have uh, to come here and enlighten us in this area in talking about unconscious bias than Dr. Augustus White? We knew that he had a very resonant message. And we spent some time talking to him about what we would do uh, in uh, this visit, both at Hopkins and here. And this morning, we had the privilege of welcoming every single word. Over 300 people were there, faculty members, members of the community, uh, people from Clark Atlanta University, Hampton University, University of Maryland, Howard University, not to mention Hopkins. And it was really a seminal moment for us. And uh, But this is not going to be complete unless we extend that conversation to the people who really matter, people from our community who have the capacity to really amplify what we do, but not just amplify it, but to transform it, because we truly believe it is the spirit of what we do that without community's input and ownership of our work, it will not go anywhere, which is why it is really an honor and a privilege for me to bring you Dr. Augustus White III. Good evening, Good evening. my fellow humans. 
uh, the, the, the stars are lined up really good, I think, for this evening and for my attempts to uh, do a good job of communicating with you. The reason I say that is that the very nice lady who was here initially to welcome us all, uh, her name is Vivian. And uh, as it turns out, I have a granddaughter whose middle name is Vivian. And I had a mother whose first name was Vivian. And she happened to be a librarian. <laughs> so I think the stars are lined up. <laughs> well, what, what I would like to share with you uh, for a few minutes is uh, kind of an introduction to a very huge and complex and very important topic of these healthcare disparities. And uh, it, it isn't really the kind of talk that is uh, all that much fun. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily an upbeat kind of thing uh, because it carries so many sobering realities. And it carries for some people from some situations uh, guilt and uh, denial, and discomfort, and it carries actually for other people, anger. Uh, and, and these are realities that are hard to avoid, but those are not what, what are the most important realities and the ones that I want to try to emphasize and share with you. Uh, I want to share the ideas that are going to help us to make progress and to address a very serious uh, problem that affects a large number of people in our society. And uh, as it turns out, uh, issues of health care disparities affect roughly, depending on how you want to count it, 13 groups of people. And uh, Asian Americans, African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, elderly people, obese people, uh, people immigrants, people who are immigrants, uh, gay people, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a very formidable list. Women, and uh, not just minority women, uh, are affected. And you can say, uh, kind of combine the urgency of this by saying, I believe, and accurately so, with women receiving health disparities, uh, you know, that means that our, our grandchildren, our children, our, our sisters, our wives, our mothers, our grandmothers, are all at risk to experience healthcare disparities. And as we talk here tonight and, and think about these things, as we're speaking, there are patients sitting in emergency rooms, uh, sitting in doctor's offices, lying in hospital beds, about to receive disparate care because of the group that they're in. So that's, uh, that's a pretty serious problem. And I would ask you, you know, how many, how many that, of that list that I listed, you know, how many people in this room are not on that list? Okay, so no one's not on the list. And uh, if there had been one or two people who raised their hands and said they were not on the list, I would say, do you also not know anybody that you care about who's on the list? And uh, I think you know, nobody could raise their hand on, on that one. So what I'd like to do is uh, I'll just go through, I have sort of a, a, 
a shortened presentation of an overview, and then I think it'd be maybe interesting for you to, to be able to ask some questions. So that'll be the second phase of things, and I think I'll probably actually come down, stand down here, and encourage you to uh, ask some questions that might be of interest uh, to you. So with that, if I can find the right arrow here, there we go. Uh, I'd like to spend just a moment, and uh, I apologize for repeating some of what's been said, but I just want to take a moment to say, uh, since this book has been written, I've visited a lot of medical centers around the country and different other venues to talk about healthcare disparities. And uh, uh, it's a formidable list. Uh, and what I experienced today uh, at, at, at Hopkins was the most uh, inspiring and exciting spirit of, of, of emphasis for change in the people that filled up this room. I mentioned uh, the room, 300 people, and people who uh, were in varying degrees engaged in healthcare delivery, engaged in policy and leadership, uh, in financing, uh, people who were placed in positions, the dean of the nursing school, uh, other people with, with positions in the university designed to improve these issues of, uh, of, of biases and to uh, relate to and develop uh, a diverse community. It's the most diverse community uh, that I've ever spoken to in, in, in any of our major medical centers. And uh, it was just very inspiring to see that and to see that uh, commitment to this very important issue. So here, here's, here are most of them here, maybe one is not listed, but, uh, and I won't necessarily read them off. The point is that these are substantive, established, institutionalized groups that are, that are working hard to educate and to get, do research to, to help to, to solve this very important societal problem. Some, uh, some time ago I was asked to present to, on, on, uh, to, present, to celebrate Dr. King's birthday. And, uh, uh, I will share with you. First, these are some organizations that have been helpful to me and to others to address some of these issues. But I thought for the presentation on Dr. King's birthday that it would be interesting to, uh, I kind of gave this topic the, the name of the topic, what Dr. King would like us to know about healthcare disparities. And I was really sort of, you know, maybe trying to be a little cute, you know, try to, to be a little uh, journalistic or whatever, you know, about. Uh, choosing this. But soon after that, I, I actually ran across this quotation. Of all the forms of inequity, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. And that's from Dr. King. And uh, help me out a little bit. Why, you know, do you, if you agree with Dr. King, why do you think that is? Why do you think that, that healthcare inequities are the most shocking and the most inhumane? Well, as we think about it, you know, when are we most vulnerable? When are we most frightened? You know, when are we uh, least knowledgeable? <laughs> you know, these are all difficult places to be. And when you have a medical problem, uh, that's where we all are. And uh, that is a, a, a hard time to be exposed to inhumane care or to inequitable management and treatment. So Dr. King, I think, really said a lot in, in this particular phrase. 
And so there are ways and there are other themes, actually, that will relate somewhat to Dr. King. This is a very thick book. It's a good two inches thick. And it's full of the documentation of what I'm saying. In other words, you don't have to take my word for it. it, it uh, these are about 600 uh, peer-reviewed uh, papers, publications in the literature that show various types of healthcare disparities that have been developed and, and that exist as part of reality. This book was published at the, uh, and, and the studies were done by the Institute of Medicine at the behest of our Congress uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, it's all documented there, that whole list. I don't think I mentioned, mentioned 13, but there are 13. And I didn't bring the slide, I actually have them listed. So this is a, I don't think anyone really seriously questions, a few people do still question this, but anyone seriously questions the reality that indeed these healthcare disparities do exist and they do apply to so many, many of our fellow humans. Uh, so just a few examples of them, uh, African-Americans, for example, uh, receive fewer kidney and liver transplants than others. Uh, African-Americans with diabetes are more likely than others to end up with an amputation related to complications uh, of their diabetes. African-Americans with prostate cancer uh, are twice as likely to have castration as the treatment uh, than others are with that same disease. Uh, what about women? Among women, and I, again, as I say, all women, uh, there's less medication following heart attacks, characteristically, characteristically given to women. Studies show uh, women receive fewer artificial joint replacements, knee joint, there was a study that done, if, uh, women who have indications for a prosthetic replacement of their knees, don't get the procedure done as, as readily or as frequently as, as others. Uh, women who have heart attacks, ironically, uh, don't get to the emergency room in the EM EMT transport system as readily as men do. And this is uh, just a few of many examples, many more examples of African-Americans, many more examples of women who experience these uh, healthcare disparities. For Hispanics or Latinos, um, it turns out in Los Angeles, someone did a study of what's called long bone fractures. Now, long bones are the bones of the forearm, the bones of the humerus here, these major bones, the thigh bone, the bone below the knee that connects the knee to the, to the ankle. Uh, those are major long bones. And uh, young Latino males presenting to the emergency room with these kinds of fractures which, you know, you, you can't argue about the diagnosis. You can either look at it and you can see it's bent, <laughs> or you take an x-ray and you see it's in two, two parts. So you can't fake that disease <laughs> very well. Uh, so it, it's not a matter of objectivity of the disease. And these individuals, and we know that broken bones, fresh broken bones are extremely, excruciatingly painful. And uh, so these young men went to the emergency room and they had 50% less chance of receiving narcotic pain medication to control their pain in the emergency room. And this was just such a shocking thing to, to, to doctors and, and people who thought they were providing decent care, uh, that they did the study again, this time in Atlanta, this time looking at African-American males, and found essentially the same results, about 50% less chance of getting narcotic pain medication for a fresh uh, long bone fracture. 
Latinos get less basic recommended services for healthcare prevention. Uh, and for example, flu vaccines, characteristically, they get less uh, care in that regard. So here's just kind of a little, another representation of this kind of thing. Lady says, give it to me straight, doc. I can take it, tell me what's wrong with me. You know? And the answer, well, you're not a white male. Uh, so, you know, that's what's wrong. That's why you're gonna get in trouble, or you're at risk to get in trouble with the healthcare that you receive. And you can even go a little farther with this and say, well, you know, maybe she's an elderly person and uh, so elderly people have disparate care. And you can look and say, well, maybe she's overweight and uh, obese people have disparate care. And you can say, well, you know, maybe she's over age, you know, uh, in, the, in the group of elderly. And then last, you can say, well, maybe she's a lesbian. So you add all that up, you know, what kind of care might she hope for? So these, these are just, some of the um, realities of what we're looking at. In addition to uh, the, the issue of uh, the, 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 what should I say, the discomfort, the inequity, the difficulties for patients, it also costs the whole system of healthcare more money. And this is a very uh, thorough study done by a group at the uh, Center for Political and Economic Studies and they found, looking between the years of 2003 and 2006, at African Americans, Asian Americans, and Latinos uh, getting healthcare disparate, receiving disparate care, it really cost our society, it really cost our system 30% uh, more than it would have cost uh, had they had equitable care. And to put it differently, uh, if you have a patient with diabetes and has a, a little infected uh, ingrowing toenail, and it gets blown off or it gets treated inadequately, that infection can fulminate and can grow, and that patient can end up with an amputation. And what does that cost to take care of an amputation once that occurs? You can't not take care of it. You can't make the patient go away. You can't make the patient disappear, so you take care of it. And uh, also, what does that cost society in terms of the ability of that patient to work and be productive? Uh, and what does that cost society in terms of having needing to offer that patient some support to, to some substance, substance uh, and the patient can't work. And this doesn't make for a very healthy society if you have large segments of the population receiving this kind of disparate care. So it is something that is, is important, not just to the poor individual human patients that suffer some of these disparities, but the overall good of, of, of our society and of our nation is, is threatened by these realities. Uh, this is something we did, we kind of looked through the literature to look at, you know, what can we do about this? What are some of the solutions? What are some of the things we can try to do to make this better? And just for the sake of dramatics, we did recognize over 100 different solutions that are recommended, all kinds of different solutions, but we just picked a few to share with you in this setting. And the first one I think is very important and is coupled with a very important uh, uh, mission and one of the reasons I'm happy to be here and I'm happy that we have a, a largely non-medical audience, I believe. Uh, how many people in here uh, are not uh, engaged in, in, in the medical or nursing uh, caregiving professions? Not engaged. Yeah, so good. So this is an audience 
of, of, of people who hopefully, who need to know this as much uh, as, 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 uh, as caregivers need to know it. Uh, so I would say, if I have to guess a percentage, I'd say 75 uh, or more percentage of you are not physicians, are not nursing caregivers. Um, so, it, but it's important that you be aware of this because you, first of all, you need to know what game you're in. You need to know the realities of the risk involved. Doesn't mean that you need to be, assume that every doctor is gonna blow you off and not take good care of you if he doesn't, or she doesn't look like you or isn't in your same group. However, uh, it is a fact though that conscious and unconscious bias uh, exist in the minds and hearts of doctors the same way it exists in the minds and hearts of, of all of us to varying degrees. Um, many of us, most of us maybe, have some biases and some prejudices, but we can address them and we must address them and we must control them. And this is what we're encouraging and what we'd like to see uh, as, as we work in medical schools and other places to uh, what we call teach doctors to be, to have culturally competent care skills, that is to learn to take just as good a care of someone who isn't in your same ethnic group or your same racial group or your same gender as you offer to someone uh, who's, who's uh, in your same uh, group. So, uh, so have patients be aware of these realities and in general have patients learn more about their, their particular diseases. Not that you're gonna try to treat yourself, but to the extent that you know and understand things about your diseases, then you can help your doctor to help you better. And your doctor can help you better just by the virtue of you having uh, this additional knowledge. <clears throat> so I think it's really important, and that's why I'm so happy to be able to speak to you who are uh, in, in the lay group, if you will, or who are potential, we're all potential patients, but those who are not necessarily physicians. So what else can we do? We can educate caregivers. Those are the doctors and the nurses, and we can make them aware, and there are various courses and various ways to, to help them to be more cognizant of these problems. And another very important element is to increase the diversity of our caregivers. Uh, the more doctors, we are woefully underrepresented in terms of doctors, nurses, and dentists in our country. Uh, our percentage uh, of, of, of the medical uh, world is somewhere around 8% and uh, our percentage of underrepresented minorities in the country is much higher, it's 13, 15%. Uh, so we need to educate more uh, Native Americans, African Americans, and Latinos to uh, go into the healthcare professions and in so doing as you create a diversity of, of, the, uh, of the caregiving staff uh, if you have diversity in the operating room, if you have diversity around, if you have diversity in the policy making areas, these ethnic sensitivities are more likely to be addressed and where there's a will to improve, uh, the presence of a diverse population can facilitate that and have that move forward more readily. And one of the ways to achieve that is through affirmative action and uh, this is a study from University of California Davis Medical School. And they in, uh, accepted uh, a large number of students on an affirmative action program. That is, they looked at special characteristics of these students that they thought would predict their success and their ability to turn out to be good doctors. And then they, they took in at the same time the, a group of students that they, and they admitted them according to the usual criteria of admitting students to medical school. 
and they followed these two groups throughout uh, several years into their career. And uh, they found out some interesting uh, things. First of all, the graduation rate was, there was only a 4% difference. The affirmative action students graduated at 94% uh, success rate. The non-affirmative action students graduated at 97%. That's a fairly small difference in, in, in my opinion. Uh, more important perhaps, and uh, even better outcome if you will, is that the specialization rates of both groups of students was, was the same. The residency performance of both groups was the same. And honors, even honors received for professional activities and professional expertise was the same in, in both groups. So it is possible to achieve diversity without compromising uh, other important uh, realities. Um, very interesting solution in the state of New Jersey. Anybody here from New Jersey? In the state of New Jersey, they passed a law, I guess about three years ago now, which says if you want to practice medicine in our state, fine. Only thing is, you need to show some evidence of culturally competent care education. And they know they, they designate specifically what things you should know and study and understand. And, if you, and so this, uh, first of all, it gets the attention of, of the physicians, because in, in some states, I think I, I, there are doctors that don't even realize healthcare disparities exist. But uh, more important, it demands that if, if you're going to be taking care of our patients in our state and we have a diverse uh, population, we want you to have some knowledge of, of culturally competent care. So far, that's the only state in the union that's done that. Uh, the state of California has done something uh, that's very helpful. They have declared that any course you give, any postgraduate course you give to a, a group of doctors, uh, medical caregivers, must include some element of culturally competent care education. And that, that should be expected to be helpful as well. Uh, a couple of other states have, have explored this and have proposed laws which didn't pass, but I'm sure that will be coming up again in other states. Um, ACGME is, is an organization that looks at, at residency programs and residency curricula and residency training. And this uh, group requires that, uh, that, that that training include some elements of cultural competence. It doesn't require to license, but it does, again, emphasize the importance of this and encourage physicians to, to learn to be culturally competent. Uh, this is the organization, the Liaison Committee on Medical Education is the organization that approves medical schools. And they demand, and no, they don't demand, they request. They have two directors. Uh, they, they can make a number of educational directives, and two of them are uh, relating to culturally competent care education. Uh, one says you should know something about the cultures of the patients you're taking care of, some insight, some understanding of those cultures. And the other says, and this is interesting, this is very unique. Students must be taught self-awareness. Students are encouraged to explore their own biases and try to have some insight and understanding as to what kind of prejudices they may have so that they can alert themselves when they're in situations where they may be engaged with a patient for whom they know they may have certain biases. The other thing, of course, is that this whole thing about unconscious biases emphasizes the fact that you may Think you're doing a good job. You may think you're not biased by a particular uh, against a particular group, but in fact you may be subconsciously, and that reality can result in disparate care for that uh, particular individual. 
Uh, this is a, a, another great philosopher, I think, uh, Desmond Tutu, and uh, he makes the statement that my humanity is bound up in yours, and we can only be human together. And uh, I think it just says what we try to emphasize is uh, part of the way to get over and get beyond, get around, jump over, discard our biases is to try to relate to other people as human beings, i.e. the doctor's human, the patient's human, to the extent that you can synergize and connect those humanities, I think you're well on the way to being able to provide equitable care to that kind of patient. And uh, uh, Bishop Tutu recognizes that you know it, it, you both can be more human if you relate to each other's humanity and, and they're, they're synergistic in a sense. So a few specific suggestions for caregivers. Uh, First of all, believe that these biases exist, because indeed they do. And uh, second, we encourage caregivers to believe that these disparities can be diminished, if not eliminated. Uh, and then there's something called the, uh, uh, the CLOS, which is a presentation that's been made to uh, offer some guidelines as how a doctor can set up her office to, to offer uh, more uh, culturally competent care have some people uh, working in the office who look like people who come into the office, uh, have some indication, some recognition of them in terms of maybe artwork on the, on the wall, magazines available in the waiting room, to let people know that uh, they're welcome, that they're recognized, that they're considered uh, people that they want to look at and take care of. Uh, explore self-awareness, this idea of trying to explore our own prejudices and our own biases, and we know those and we encounter a patient who's in one of those categories, we can alert ourselves to say, well, okay, I wanna make sure I provide excellent care for this patient. Uh, Evidence-based medicine is medicine that is, is, is carefully uh, determined by reading what's in the best uh, literature that's available to doctors. And uh, in other words, it means guide your treatment according to recommended uh, studies about how to make a particular diagnosis and how to determine uh, a best treatment for the patient. And of course, include obviously the patient's wishes and needs and understanding uh, in those endeavors. Humanize our patients. We've emphasized that. Uh, recognize that you are a human being and your job is to relate to this other human being in a co cooperative, collaborative way to try to be able to help them and to communicate respectfully and, and effectively with them. And what we talk about is a double F criteria, just use it, just try to treat every patient as family or friend as best you can and you'll do well uh, in terms of avoiding these disparities. And uh, a teach back mechanism is, is I think uh, helpful and effective to consider. And a teach back is a simple exercise in order to improve accuracy of communication. Before you leave, you're finishing up with the patient. You may say, well, Ms. Jones, uh, just as we finish up, uh, would you mind just reviewing what you understand, tell me what you understand as to what your disease issue is and how we're gonna to try to treat it and anything else that you think that we've tried to emphasize in our meeting. And Ms. Jones responds and she may get it all just right, and would you say that's right? That, that's good. Uh, we'll see you. See you again. See you next time. 
or she may leave something out or she may have something a little incorrect and you say well Ms. Jones you know we, we we want you to also think about thing X do try to do this if you can and so then you go back and you say now would you mind just tell me again you know how you see it so this mechanism really improves accuracy of communications and one of the big things that causes healthcare disparities is uh, cultural differences cultural mis misfiring cultural cultural misunderstandings of what lead to uh, what can lead to some of these disparate uh, uh, treatments <clears throat> so we talk uh, what happens if you get into a crusty interaction this is really more for, for the doctor but it could be well anyway with it with a doctor uh, sometimes a patient will get upset and angry and uh, accuse the doctor of being uh, you know, biased or disrespectful or uh, mean-spirited or whatever, and we suggest that the doctor step back, relax, and apologize without making excuses, and say, you know, Miss Jones, I, 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 you came here. I want to take care of you. I want to try to give you the best care I can, and I'm sorry for you know for what happened. Uh, but can we go forward and can we see if we can work together and I can I can take care of you. And uh, uh, in that situation. It'll either work. Ms. Jones will decide. Well, okay, let's you know. All right, doctor, let's see what we can do. Or uh, she may choose uh, not to, and may choose and should have another doctor if she doesn't feel confident that you know that that impasse has been uh, appropriately addressed, and the doctor really does care and really does want to give her good care. In which case, it makes sense to stay. Um, okay, uh, a couple of other things, somewhat overlapping. But uh, treat all patients with respect. Uh, that, that's uh, easy enough and, and, and uh, simple enough to, to understand and, and, and apply. Patient-centered care means, besides being the doctor and figuring out what's wrong with the patient, telling the patient what to do, you want to try to look at the patient's situation from their point of view and, and address what they perceive as their needs and their concerns. And that's all patient-centered care means, and that's what we uh, should strive for as well. And uh, as we said, in this, we can't be too emphatic about this whole issue of establishing a diverse medical staff, a diverse administrative staff, uh, and, and, and trying to help people to uh, uh, get over and increase their mutual understanding uh, by having a diverse population to provide the care. Now, just a few things for the patients. The same way it's important for the doctor to reach out to the patient and connect with the patient's humanity. Uh, the patient can reach out to the doctor and connect with the doctor's humanity. And by that, all we mean is just somehow relating just instantaneously or in part to the person, not just as a doctor in a white coat, but as another human being. And in very simple terms, some of the things that, that can you know break the ice, excuse the expression, but it's to talk about the weather. You know, everybody experiences the weather one way or another. You know, there are all kinds of conversations you can make about the weather, you know. Uh, members of your family, how they manage the weather or what happened to the weather or what time you like, you don't like. But you can just break the ice and it, it, it's, it, it, it's understood that you're reaching out to that person as a human being. And I think that can be very helpful. And other things that, that will connect you. So, and what you're trying to do is you want to help the doctor to help you in your best interest and there is a bridge that connects us whether we're in the same ethnic group or not and you want to kind of meet the doctor halfway if you can 
to, it's in, only in your best interest to try to help the doctor understand you, understand your culture, and if you recognize cultural differences, to, to try to address it in, in a positive way. Uh, and if you engage with a doctor and it's not working, you can feel it intuitively, or you can just see that you know the doctor not really doesn't seem to care about you. Well, you know you don't. I think you can present that and say, you know, it seems that you're not listening to me. Uh, I, I, am I am I right? I don't think you really are listening and care about my problem. I, I came here because of this clinic is known to be a good clinic, or this is a good hospital, or you have a good reputation. But somehow I don't feel we're working together. And the doctor, if it, if, if if, if the doctor blows that off, then you're probably right, and you probably need another doctor. The doctor, again, steps back and apologizes and says, well, what did I do? What did I say? How can we uh, address this? I didn't mean this. And let, let's see if we can go forward and work together. Then, then I, I would certainly give it, give it a try. But I think you can be frank. There's no reason not to be. You don't have to be mean or accusatory or angry, but you can be frank. You know, are we having trouble communicating? Do you, you know, don't you, you don't understand me, I get the feeling you don't have time or you're rushed or you don't care. And, and based on the response, you can decide to stay with it or have a different doctor. Um, study your disease. As I said, you're not going to try to manage your disease. You're not going to try to be your own doctor. But I promise you, the more you know and understand about your disease, the better care you'll get. The more in, intelligent, meaningful, useful questions you'll ask and, and, and the more things you'll you'll be able to do yourself to, to, you'll know when better, you know, when to t call the doctor, when something's really wrong, and it's just worth the effort. And it's available on the internet. There are, better, there are other places, but Mayo Clinic is a good, is a good source, uh, WebMD as well. And you can do a teach back yourself. The doctor doesn't do a teach back. You can say, well, doctor, before I leave, let me just see if I understand what we've, what we've done here today and, and what my problem is and what we're going to do to try to correct it. And, uh, the doctor will say, that's right, you got it. I'll say, well, don't forget we said thing A, or said thing B. So the doctor will correct you in the teach back. And if you're comfortable with it, by all means, take a friend or a relative with you to the doctor. If, if you're not, you know, confidentiality isn't an issue, do that and all of the things being equal, I think that will tend to, to be helpful as well. <clears throat> so back to Dr. King. Uh, I uh, had the pleasure of attending a breakfast in Dr. King's honor way back in 1963. And uh, uh, I'm the naive looking person in the back row there. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was a wonderful experience. It, it just absolutely was wonderful. I didn't really talk with him much. Uh, I listened a lot and I, it was very clear though that, that I was in the room with, with an outstanding human being. Uh, it was very clear. And uh, it, it's, it's been a wonderful inspiration to me and, and, and always will be. And I'm sure uh, many of you share similar uh, uh, sentiments. Uh, and here's, a, here's what I believe. I believe that Dr. King would want us to continue to strive to be a more humane society and for doctors, nurses, and others to be humanitarian role models and try to reach out to one another and be helpful to one another as fellow human beings. Uh, as we go forward. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to come downstairs to you. Anybody uh, has any uh, questions? Anything?
you know, people come and then inspire speeches and, and, and talk about these managers. And, and no, I don't mean to say that the whole medical profession is not many by any means, but during those years, with the stresses and all the realities and all the hard work, that subconsciously, again, I mean, our subconscious minds play tricks on us all the time, whether we're doctor or what we are. And subconsciously, our mind picks up some of these things, and before we realize it, you know, we're, we're, we're expressing our behavior is influenced by these, these subconscious biases. So yes, they happen, and the job, what is our job in, in educating ourselves and our students to be culturally confident, culturally confident, we have to realize these realities and we have to try to address them and prevent them from happening. The other thing to realize is that I and most of my professorial colleagues, if not all of them, went all the way through medical school and never heard the word culturally competent care once. You know, never heard the word healthcare disparity once because that was not part of the realities at that time. So even though it's a problem and just we're making progress, at least we're aware of the problem and now we can work to to make it better. Good evening, Dr. White. Please. I've been enjoying your presentation. Uh, my name is Andre Lee, and I've just recently been nominated as the Vice President of AARP, a local chapter here in Baltimore. And thank you. Um, I would like to know what information I should uh, share when we have our next chapter meeting uh, in regards to the Obamacare. There's a lot of questions about Obamacare and how that will impact uh, the elderly, and especially minorities, you know, elderly people who are in the minority groups. And so I just wonder, what is the connectivity between the disparity that you speak of today and the Obamacare? Is there any relationship? Of, you know, what information could I share with them in regards to that? Yeah. Well, I think uh, I'm going to do a bit of a disclaimer on this, because I think that's a very uh, hot uh, realistic uh, political issue. And I think it's 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 very difficult uh, to to sort out the politics from the, the reality. And it's very difficult to sort out the realistic, reasonable arguments from the political agendas. And uh, I, I would say though uh, that I would uh, Reference to see if it fits with, with the rest of your colleagues and the rest of the leadership in the organization. And uh, I would get, I would talk to some of the people in the medical school to see if you can get one or two consultants to really know and understand the, the legislation and get them to come and talk to you about the legislation, you know, the reality, not the propaganda, you know, not the phrases and, and, and things that people throw out, which may or may not be accurate but clearly are not motivated just in the best interest of the society. And I, you know, I don't want to beat up on politicians. I mean, I'm sure there are politicians here uh, and, and, and are all that way. But it, the, the, the demagoguery confuses the issue. And the issue is complicated enough as it is with the realities. So I wouldn't propose to try to advise you on that other than to say to you know, do a little research, talk to a few people, and, and see if you can get in touch with someone who'd be willing to, to, to study the actual legislation, not all 2,500 pages, but, uh, but you know, to look at it and, 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 and then come and, and answer some questions for you and your colleagues. 
that hopefully will be somewhat free of the various political agendas that are floating around. Uh, and, you know, respectfully, I would suggest, you know, even uh, starting off with the term Obamacare is a politics good as opposed to, you know, actually trying to address the reality. And we as citizens, you know, we, I, the whole kind of, again, I'm, 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 not, I didn't, I'm not a professor of, of, of political science by any means, but, you know, the whole uh, sense of how we survive in this country depends on how smart we are in our voting and our decision making and how we try not to get duped, you know, in, in our thinking. And so the more responsibility we can take, the more strategy we can do. I think it's a, it's a great idea that you raise a question, and it's very important. So that would be my question. Before, before you go to the next question, there were a couple of questions there. And yeah. I would volunteer to to look for some colleagues who may be expert in this area, uh, if we can get them to kind of talk to your group. And he can find them and he can get them to come talk. Dr. Darrell Gaskin, who was, in fact, uh, the economic uh, uh, sciences, the health economist who contributed to that report we're talking about, the 30% excess. You know, in collaboration with companies. Yeah. Great, great, right. Good. Yeah. You would be good. It would be great to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great service to the. Thank you. And the brother just became national president, right? Mr. Gray? Yes. Of AARP? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I um, have read several articles about the. Um, there, there's bias within groups based on color. Is there enough evidence out there to say this is true? That shades of color within a racial group is one point of bias? Uh, in my opinion, yes. Have I seen studies? No. But I don't think there's a whole lot of doubt Well, actually, the evidence says I mean, we saw on popular television while we had this little thing with uh, little kids, like two or yeah. three years old, and they, you know, the shades of difference were, were real, and the parents were appalled, they, they had no idea, yeah. that, you know, they thought they were raising their kids, you know, would be baptized. So, yeah, I, I, I think we have to assume that those are realities. But I, I think we can, we can get past it by being educated. In fact, we motivate us to get past it. I think we, we can do a whole lot better job than if we don't want to look at it. Just you alluded to uh, in your presentation about getting younger people involved in the healthcare profession, which obviously is extremely important. Uh, when I was in business school, this is going back to the 80s now, we had a program that was uh, MD slash MBA. But back then, Folks who did it were truly considered doctors interested in running a business, learning how to run a business. As time has gone on, what's happened with those programs, they expanded to a lot more schools, but now it's because doctors realize that they're pretty good at math and science. And I have a several group of friends who are doctors, and many of them tell me they wish they were following my track and went into Wall Street. They're passionate and love what they do. But dealing with HMOs and insurance companies and all the debt and how long they go to school, they regret going to medicine. And I asked them, well, would you 
recommend it to the children, they say, no, I would not recommend my children go into medicine. So could you talk about, besides the affirmative action, our plan of action we have to get young folks, because most of these young folks who are going to medicine of color, they see disparities in their family, in the neighborhood, and they want to do something about it. But along the way, they get discouraged because of all the debt and how long they have to go to school, or they realize they can make so much more money on Wall Street. All the healthcare analysts and biotech analysts on Wall Street pretty much now are former doctors. And they go to the street or they go to hedge fund because they can make seven, eight figures, which is a lot of money. So I'm interested in a plan of action, grabbing these young folks at a very early age, get them interested in medicine, keep them interested in medicine, keep them engaged, give them those internships, help them with the debt, and get them to go to Mexico City, going back to their communities and neighborhoods to become physicians. Is there a plan of action you know of? Well, um, there are lots of pipeline programs around the country. And uh, uh, I think most people would would appreciate, would like, and hope that the yields might be greater. But there's still a lot of uh, a lot of young people who are really, uh, you know, almost like the old country doctor that doesn't exist anymore, who are willing to take care of people. And you know, the people bring them some eggs and some chickens. Uh, you know, they they didn't have a gratifying life, and there's a lot of wealth in helping your fellow human being. And it's not the same though as, as you know, with cash in the bank. I don't think that comes at all. And I think still there are a substantial number of people who will come through the system, who will be gratified, who will who will do a good job. But I also I think you didn't say anything that that, that isn't true. I mean that, that the debt is horrendous. And, uh, and, and the temptation, you know, I, one, one thing you say, most of these students, if not all of them, are certainly bright enough to get through business school and, 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 and graduate and, and be uh, knowledgeable in, in, in business affairs and to practice business affairs. Uh, so it's a challenge. I mean, even another layer of that challenge is right now, if you project the need for physicians going forward, we're not going to have enough primary care doctors at the rate we're going now. And again, we're beginning to open new medical schools and we're trying to respond. Uh, but there, there is a lot of difficulty and a lot of challenges. And I think uh, people should, should examine themselves and should make sure that they are going in and they're going to be gratified and satisfied. They're not going to be poor. They're not going to send meals. Uh, but they're not going to be wealthy, necessarily, uh, unlikely, you know, going into the medical profession. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle choice. And uh, that, that, that's my basic response. But I don't, you know, you didn't say anything that, that isn't true, sir. Uh, as I, as I listen to um, you and look at your slides, me being among the 75% of us here who are care receivers and not caregivers, I continue to think, how can I use this information? Um, in my visiting my healthcare professionals. Then you came, I came to your slide where you talked about the feedback, become, increase your medical literacy. I'm a person who used WebMD, researched the web, researched my own symptoms before I go to the doctor. However, I have, in my experience, often encountered 
times where doctors don't have an opportunity, don't have the time, or will not take the time because of um, insurance issues. They won't take the time to um, give the feedback that you described. I have had um, healthcare professionals tell me, I can only give 15 minutes per person. So if I am feeling, um, when I visit a healthcare professional, this thing that I don't know if there's a bias against me, or is this the 15 minutes? Is this doctor not telling me all the things that are available to me because of my insurance? Or is this the result of um, a unconscious or maybe conscious bias of this doctor? Then, you know, I'm thinking about, you say, confront this doctor. I'm hesitant to confront a doctor on a Monday and Tuesday I'm going to be under anesthesia with that same doctor that I'm <laughs> <laughs> What do we do? What's up with doctor? You know, I go back to the, what do I do with this information? I have gone to doctors, even with pages I've printed up, say, hey, I feel this, this, this. I feel like doctors are not welcoming to patients who are educated, who challenge, who question their diagnosis. I don't know if it's a, um, cultural bias, an economic bias, an insurance company bias, or what's going on there? Well, I can grab it under the ethics and the approach, and I think you're allowed to do that. And I think, though, first of all, I believe you're much better off working with the person you continue to do what you're doing. And at some point, you know, you kind of, I mean, as a doctor bias, unbiased, and so forth, to a large degree, I believe,
And when I would take her to the doctor, I would always say, my mother doesn't hear well, would you please speak up? Or when she was in the hospital, I always say to the caregiver, would you please look at my mother because she can also get help reading her lips. And I often wonder, I mean, they didn't do it. I mean, it was just like this cloud passed by. And I really don't understand because so many of the elderly have some degree of hearing impairment. And I often wonder what she understood. I mean, I would be the translator and the protector of getting the correct information, diagnosis, and treatment. But without an advocate, I, I don't know. I mean, I well, I was a very difficult situation. And I, I can't say that I've seen any stuff of this as you not. I haven't run across it, but uh, it's certainly a situation that uh, clearly is, is frequent and, and very uh, more expert in the but I know it's a very, uh, a very challenging uh, limited ability you know, to be in a situation where you, you have to talk to it. Your life depends on it. Your life depends on it. And uh, it's certainly good to bring someone along to help. And uh, to, to did what he did, make sure that the patient's hospitalized and the people on the floor know and understand this. And, and, and it is a responsibility, whatever that's worth, but it is a responsibility to communicate with somebody that is in the language business. Uh, they, you know, people are legally obliged to improve. Yes, uh, Dr. White, uh, thanks for coming to see me. I'm glad I made you meet you outside before you gave a speech. But um, the woman here actually sort of answered, sort of asked my question to you, but I'll be a little bit more specific. There was a slide you had in reference to communicating uh, teaching. Your, um, your doctor as a patient. I want you to expand on that a little bit as far as like uh, what reference can you go into more detail about that as far as being from a cultural perspective or you mean from a symptomatic perspective or all the above? Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, what, I, what I mean is to, uh, to reach out to, to the doctor a little bit, you know, in terms of uh, your culture. Uh, Emphasis of things that, that may come up just in conversation where you can give a little insight uh, to, to your culture. Uh, I was a Latino friend, for example, uh, doctor, and uh, he uses uh, he uses spices and talk about spices for his patients, and, and vice versa. Uh, in the case, uh, just as a way to kind of reach out and touch the other person. And uh, in some cases, uh, there's, there's something about the culture in terms of uh, some of the uh, Arabic cultures. One, a female patient, was a very uh, different uh, process than it was from, from some other patients. And, uh, and how can you person 
and uh, you know, just give you a little heads up outside, you know, it's kind of a little but here's the way you want to do it. I need to be in the room, and uh, here's the way the, the you know, uh, exposure of unrobing of the patient to the extent that we're going to allow this to be done. And just give a little guide and this would be helpful whenever you can anticipate when that might be helpful. Uh, you try to do I, I think that's essentially what I'm trying to do. Do you have a question? Oh, wait, no, yes? Yes. Uh, no, I don't have a question. Okay, that sounds good. There was a question here. Yeah. Okay, not so much a question as a comment. And I thank you, Dr. Mike, for coming to And I thank you from the faith based community of Turner Station. Southeast section of Walton's New York, located in downtown, where we had Dr. William Supley, who was the fan of that And he didn't say, hey, but he wanted a cat or something. <laughs> and he's expired now. But if the patients that owe him money would pay them to do so that's the ambiance of the community that I live in. I was not born or raised in transmission. But this is the doctor who looked at unsung Henry, Henry Evans, of which we are advocating now. And we have started 15 years ago in our community to advocate for the last family to get recognition for the mother of our children that her cells were taken when she went to Johns Hopkins Hospital. And at that time, Dr. Wade did not even wait on her as a doctor because of discrimination. And I am so glad now that it's finally out. This is an African-American mother, and she resided in our community. And um, we have now gotten a great sight on her unmarked grave in, um, I'm sorry, Clover, Virginia. But aside from that, I'd like to go back to the statements that you made. Um, in my childbearing years, I did go to um, Provident Hospital, which no longer exists. And at that hospital, which is all black, I experienced bias. Not from the male doctor, from the female doctor. And it's so hard. Um, this was my first child. I did not know what it what was entailed in having a child. But I knew I was so uncomfortable. I asked someone, is there another doctor And they uh, another doctor, which was a male doctor. And I found him to be much more. <laughs> and then another question that was asked by the business person in our community. We are now working with Johns Hopkins um, Hospital, which this is the second year they've had recognition for antibiotics. So they have come to our community in terms station at um, Merlin, University of Maryland Medical Center has come. And um, 
California State University has come. So with those three entities, we are going to try to set up a system wherein we can teach our children in the community to become part of the medical community so that we can have an abundance of students interested in the medical field and we will teach them the bias and the difference in the medical And I thank you so much for my time. And for those of you who don't know, I mean, you know, this is the Yeah. <laughs> I just thought since your experience was so uh, local, 
I think first of all, I think uh, you would try to read as much as you can about health care. And I think also be familiar with uh, some of the policy regulations regarding insurance coverage. And also, I think whenever you go see the health care provider, you should have family member or friend. Thank you. I, I couldn't hear what was being discussed over there, so if I'm repeating anything, excuse me. But I guess as lay people, I think we have to not only look at the doctor, uh, I think we have to say today healthcare is so confusing that the doctor really can't know everything and we shouldn't expect them to, that there is a team. And with the change in the cost of care, it seems to me there's going to be a lot of other type of people who will be assisting. And I think that we have to, if there really has to be a team approach to a patient. And each person should know their part in that team so that the questions that need to be asked for certain things and when the doctor is busy that this other person takes over. So I think we have to go through a change in how we are looking at healthcare and what we expect of a physician. I mean, I expect a lot of a physician, but I think that they should have a good office staff that can do a lot of things that they don't have to do. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. And I think that currently medical schools, uh, some medical schools are paying more attention uh, are included in, in the kinds of characteristics they're looking for for the medical school applicants is among other things I said, you said, we're going to visit the gallbladder in this room. There is no gallbladder in this room. 
Gallbladders normally would be you get a specimen jar. There is no gallbladder in the room. He says, you know what I meant. I said, no, I don't know what you meant. I said, well, let me explain something to you. Don't ever address a patient as an anatomical piece of work. I said, that's just so disrespectful. Well, he was living. He was just living because apparently he'd been accustomed to having his way throughout the hospital. Little did I know that 30 years later, I would be seen by his daughter <laughs> in the emergency room. When I saw the name, I thought, hmm, how likely is this person to be related? Because the name is so very unusual. And I said to her, I said, is your father a doctor? She said, yes. I said, hmm, I said, met your father many years ago now. She says, oh my God. She says, I was a little girl. When he came home, he was so angry that he was just living throughout the house for a long time. He says, who is that? Girl? But I thought it was interesting that I impacted him. Of course, it didn't help him. In some way, he changed You know, that he was not going to address the patients in a less than respectful way. But I thought that was so odd that 30 years later, I would happen to one or two. His daughter, who also was not. Oh, she was much better. <laughs> A wonderful example of, of uh, working the ceiling. That was just given to the nurse from the start. And of course, the nurse. And you exerted your influence. And I, I just have that again now. Well, we don't have that now. But uh, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Nice so, so, this came up in the discussion. Uh, uh, I think it was students, someone asked. Uh, Uh, a good thing to do, and 
uh, the policy in order to have in hospitals, not in corporations, other places yeah. as well. Well, I, I, this is a really important question for me. Um, you know, sometimes communication doesn't always reveal how good a doctor is. You know, sometimes things get lost in words and communication. So as a patient, especially if I have a specialized disease or something that I'm really concerned about, how do I go about not only looking at how the doctor reacts to me, but also determining, is he a good doctor for this particular disease? Is he the one I should be, that I should really trust because he has so much experience? I just don't really know, as a patient, how do you go about researching how good a doctor is? Is he a premier doctor? Is this the best hospital this? How do you go about that? Yeah, well, I think uh, that's a good and important question. And uh, I'm not personally expert on searching the internet, but there are lots of listening of physicians, there are lots of uh, evaluations of hospitals. And, uh, and uh, you can also, by word of mouth, for possible, because this, this is where you get into cultural differences. You know, in some cultures, you may know five doctors, you know, with, with, your, with your friends or whatever. But in other cultures, you may not know anybody. Uh, but you may know nurses, uh, or you may know anyone in the healthcare profession. So you can kind of ask around, you can sort of word of mouth as well. Uh, but but uh, they have, most states have some listing of doctors. In some cases, it's just list doctors who, who've been uh, you know, suspended or been uh, brought, brought forward uh, for, for practices that are undesirable. Uh, but you can do those particular things. And uh, I think that can, can help. And it's, a, it's important uh, research to, to do. And hospitals are also rank in, in a variety of ways. And, and I'm not referring to just the, you know, the U.S. News and World Report that ranks the top 10 hospitals in the whole country, that kind of thing. But, but other, other listings locally uh, of uh, different hospital situations uh, that you can, you can look up and you can talk. Without a strong bias, a favor of U.S. News and World
Is there anything in particular that um, your personal experience with this? Did you find a lot of physicians and colleagues very resistant to even your ideas of bringing this up? Well, I'll try to answer it briefly. I mean, I'm sure you did. Yeah, but it's not a short answer, but I'll try to go. Yeah. I, I, I decided to start clinical work maybe about 10 years ago. And I was uh, fortunate to be asked by the, the Dean of Medical Education to, uh, to apply for a position as a master of one of the uh, academic societies. Our, our medical school, the Harvard Medical School, a very large medical school divided into five academic societies. And each society had a, a senior professor who was a master whose job, along with other professors that, that he or she could recruit, is to help the students in their professional development, advising, mentoring, and working with them. And once you take that position, you end up sort of on all of the all of the committees that relate to medical education. And so in that process, it, it rapidly became aware of this issue of healthcare disparities. And I had an interest independent of that in diversity in higher education. In, in my college serving board of trustees and trying to go to the emergency diversity. So that naturally led into healthcare disparities issues. And, uh, and, and there wasn't a lot going on at that time in, in our school. And so I asked the dean if I could, could work in, in the area. And so I started working. Uh, now there one, there's one other item that occurred. You know, since you asked me, I'll tell you. The other item was, is before I really began looking at the healthcare disparities kind of thing, was that I was sitting on the airplane. And usually on the airplanes, I try to read and call out, and I usually not threaten social with people sitting next to me because it's a chance to concentrate. I happen to be sitting next to uh, an attractive young lady uh, who was pleasant and somehow engaged in conversation. And uh, in the course of that conversation, uh, somewhere along the way, she discovered that I was a doctor. And when she discovered that, she got this forlorn look in her eye. And she kind of looked out at the space, and in a very kind of emotional way, said, I just hate to go to college. And it was so dramatic that I called it up. I said, can you explain what do you mean? And she said, well, she said, uh, except for my face and my neck and my hands, I have 100% whole body tattoo. And when I go to see the doctors and you know, keep my food on, they just treat me so bad. And I could just imagine, I could just see, you know, come here, Joe, let me show you. Please make sure you go. Know, the, the kinds of insensitivities and the kinds of disregard and disrespect and misunderstanding that must flow when, when this young woman was in this situation. And uh, she was a perfectly uh, intelligent, pleasant, normal individual. But she happened to be a, and she actually was a, a tattooed model. And, and that, was, that was the reality. So, so I, when I got back to school, the guy that I knew up in, in the medical school who had been very involved with some, some disparity issues and what I said, you know, what, what's happening? I got to get involved in this. So that really took the took the balance and got them involved with that. Thank you.
So with that, I would like to thank uh, Dr. White for a wonderful talk. Thank you. 